jump into the, ser- the sermon this morning, and the passage is a really, really fun passage. You may want to go home and read this again and again a few times. I, this is one of these places where G- if you, it's so easy to read over some of these passages and not appreciate uh, just the humor and the creativity and the challenge of Jesus. So he's going to talk what, what, what will initially look like dinner etiquette, party etiquette, but it's so much more. That's what I want to help you see this morning. It's so much more to the degree that I can. I mean, we'll talk about a lot of this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But to get us thinking about etiquette, I thought, and I, maybe I've shared this before, but I was thinking about etiquette. The favor, my favorite pieces of etiquette advice that I was given come, the dating etiquette, this is, I, I titled my introduction this way, dating etiquette for a high school college boy in the 1990s from my middle sister. There you go. That's, that's what I'm going to start with. The two things that my sister told me that were super important for dating etiquette, and she was so wrong, and that's why I remember it, and I still like the teaser. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, it was common if you, uh, if you were a guy and you took a girl out on a date, it was common because not, not every car, in fact, probably most cars did not have automatic locks. And so there was this thing called a key. Some of you may have heard about it. And there would be a keyhole in a door. Actually, all the doors had keyholes. And it was the guy, it was proper dating etiquette, according to my middle sister, to unlock the, the passenger side door first for the lady, open the door for the lady. She would get in and you close the door. But this was the big thing for my sister to her younger brother. But if the lady does not reach across the car and unlock your door, she's not a keeper. <laughs> so uh, my wife, Kami, sitting right over there, our first date, guess what she didn't do? <laughs> so Kami and I tease my sister about that all the time. The other thing that my sister told me, and I didn't do this so much in high school and college, but I would just remember her over and over. She would get so annoyed at me. I did not like food that was temperature-wise really hot. Like, if it was too hot, I couldn't eat it. And pizza, if you've ever noticed, cheese locks in a lot of heat, right? So I would eat my pizza, and I would scrape all the cheese off. It would irritate my sister. Like, why do you do that? And she would always tell me, no girl, if you ever do that on a date, no girl will ever go out with you again. That is horrible dating etiquette, Jeff. Now, I don't think I actually did that on a date. I don't think I did. But Kami and I, we've talked to my sister about that. Kami's one of her best friends growing up, used to do that all the time. So she's like, I totally wouldn't have cared. So two for two, my sister was wrong. I love it. Anyway, dating etiquette for a high school college boy in the 1990s from my middle sister. There you go. I'll have to tell her she made the sermon today. She'll like that. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. We're working our way through the gospel of Luke right now as we preach through the church calendar. And uh, um, as I said, it's a great passage. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 7. It's just the way, just for this year, we don't normally do this, but just for this year, we've been preaching the gospel text as it goes with the church calendar. I'll talk more about that. If you haven't been a part of our series, I'll talk more about that in weeks ahead. But we, we get verse 1, and then we jump to verse 7. There's, if you were with us last week, there was a Sabbath healing, and we saw the reaction of the people to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. So we talked about that last week, and so the, the way the Book of Common Prayer is written out is we jump over the Sabbath healing story and go right into two little parables, and they are parables we'll talk about. It's very important that you understand them as parables in verse 7. So we'll talk a little bit about verse 1 first, though. One Sabbath day... 
Jesus went to eat dinner. So it's good. You maybe can smell the tacos. We're going to be eating dinner. We're going to be talking about dinner. You're going to be really hungry when the service ends. Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, one of these religious groups in the first century in Jerusalem and Israel. And it says the people were watching him closely. Again, because Jesus, we'll talk, Jesus was doing all kinds of things that they didn't understand. And for the religious leaders who were feeling threatened by Jesus, they didn't like a lot of what he was doing. So let's talk a little bit about the Pharisees. Jesus is about to talk. We're going to talk about dinner etiquette. And if you keep reading, which again, hopefully you do, just spend some time in Luke 14 today or this week. If you keep reading, he's also going to tell another parable about the kingdom of God as a banquet. Jesus loved to tell parables because he's trying, we'll talk about, he's trying to get us to think differently. We'll talk about paradigm shifts. He's trying to get us to think differently. So he tells, and he tells all kinds of images. We'll, we'll, I'll even talk about a couple images or met, metaphors this morning as we go. But he would talk about the story, the, the kingdom of God is like someone coming home. The kingdom of God is like a seed. The kingdom of God is like finding a treasure and you sell everything. The kingdom of God is like someone settling their, I mean, all these, settling their accounts, like all these images. But he often talked about the kingdom as a banquet. And just some of the background, the Pharisees loved this. I mean, I, they got excited. Because the Pharisees were maybe the most excited. I mean, it's one of the tricky and tragedy, tricky parts of the, the Pharisees is they were maybe the most excited about the kingdom of God coming. And they were maybe the most convinced that the Messiah, the, this coming king, would hold a great banquet. And they knew, and they knew, and they knew. They were excited because they knew in their minds that they would be invited and have seats of honor. That's <laughs> why, so, yeah, let's talk about that banquet. Let's talk about where we'll be sitting. And it, we, I try to draw this out as we've been going through the Gospels, but part of the tragedy of these Gospel accounts is that these Pharisees were so excited about the Messiah coming and when, they, when he came. When they actually, like Luke 14, had a chance to dine with the coming king. They didn't like it. They didn't recognize him. And if you keep reading in Luke 14, these are the very people who you would think would be at the party. And they make up all kinds of excuses. Oh, that's tonight? <laughs> I got other plans. They just keep reading in Luke 14. You'll see what I'm talking about. Jesus was the kind of Messiah coming king they never expected, and quite frankly, I don't think they wanted, because he didn't fit their paradigm and his teaching, and we'll look at some of that as we keep reading in the text, his teaching on the kingdom of God did not fit what they expected. You could say, as one author did, Jesus was unique. And the trouble with uniqueness is that practically no one can see it as anything but crazy. All they see when they meet somebody truly one of a kind is the electric sign inside their own heads that keeps flashing, not like me. That's not like me. That's not like me. There's a whole lot of that as people encounter Jesus. What do you do with him? And so Jesus did a variety of things, just even, even the way, even, even we could talk, the way he practiced eating with people upset people. He was constantly disorienting people and frustrating them and amazing them and confusing them because he wanted to shift their paradigm. He wanted them, we, I mean, repent. What does repent mean? Turn around. He wanted them to rethink everything in light of the true king. Rethink, that's what, repent, rethink everything in light of Jesus, in light of who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus. 
And I was thinking, you know, you, you, you preach, and I always preach and just pray that the Holy Spirit would use whatever. You know, if we're just creating space for God to move. But as you're trying to, like, rhetorically, like, work something out, you do as a pastor kind of have some things in mind that you want to get across. And I was thinking this morning, it's kind of an interesting sermon because really what I want to get across, what I think Jesus is really getting at in our text as we keep reading, is a shift in paradigm. And I know I can't shift your paradigm from one sermon. I mean, if you've ever gone through a paradigm shift, you know it often just kind of, it kind of sneaks up on, and you will resist it like the Pharisees. You will resist it until you can no longer resist it. And so on one level, I'm preaching to shift your paradigm as I teach the words of Jesus, but really it's something that only, the, it's almost more, it's a prayer for the Holy Spirit to do, to do what only he can do, to, to change the way we see. Because as we've talked about, we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. As I talk about paradigm shifts, what, what, what do I mean? And I'll try to illustrate this in a variety of different ways as I go. But, but one of the ways, and, I, and, I, and I'll even repeat things I've said, because with paradigm shifts, you usually have to hear things over and over and over. In fact, even as we read the text this morning, the first time you hear it, the first time you see it, you usually don't get it. And, and the, the, the interesting thing, Jesus will say things like, those who have ears, let them hear. If you really go through a transformation and a paradigm shift and, and you get a new set of lenses, it's almost like you don't see it until you see it. And then you're like, how did I see it? I don't, I just, it's, not, it's just this change, this shift that happens. It's the work of God in our lives. And one of the illustrations I like to use or examples is I talk about this often as we talk about growth and transformation and becoming like Jesus is how how change is not linear for us. And I talk about Jay all the time when he was a kid. I used to think that he would, he would learn how to moo like a cow on Monday. And after we've got that down, we'll practice, practice. And then on Tuesday, we'll learn to quack like a duck. And on Wednesday, we'll learn to oink like a pig. And then Friday, neigh like a horse. You know, like it would just be this linear progression. But that's not how it worked with Jay. He couldn't do any, any animal noises. And then all of a sudden, he could do them all. <laughs> There's this massive change. This whole new world was open. And it's like, what, what, what happened from one day to the next? I, did all, I don't know, but something happened, and all of a sudden he knew all the animal noises. And that, that's what I mean, like this paradigm shift. It's not just incremental. It's, not, it's, just, it's just this big leap that happens. It's a movement of God. And Jesus, in his ministry, is constantly teaching again and again, saying the same things over and over. And paradoxically, things that don't make sense. You want to find your life? Lose it. What? You want to be first, be last. What? But that's what he says. And, if, and we think we know, right? You know, you got you to hear it, wrestle with it, and realize, I don't really know what he's talking about. I need a paradigm. I need God to do something because I, I don't understand this, okay? So, so that's what we're driving at. So it might have a different response than we might sometimes on a Sunday morning, but I think it's important. So let's keep reading. Luke 14, verse 7. We'll just, we'll just read through these two many parables from Jesus. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. And again, I want you to think, this is a, this is a real dinner party. I mean, who wants to invite Jesus to their dinner party after he does this and what he's going to do next? He gives them this advice. Now, now, I'm using the New Living Translation. I like it. I told you several of my seminary professors were a part of this translating committee um, but this is one of the places where I'm like, eh. The Greek word is actually parable. And I want you to, this is not advice. This is a parable. 
Jesus is telling a parable, and that'll make more and more sense as we keep talking this morning. So here's the parable. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed, and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table, and then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so people are jockeying for seats, and Jesus just calls them all out. Awkward, right? And then he turns to his host. So this leader of the Pharisees who's hosting this dinner in his house. Oh, and by the way, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives and your rich neighbors. No, 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 no. Because they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. I mean, one level, he's like, well, you invited winners tonight to dinner. So everyone's like, I'm a winner. But you should have invited losers. <laughs> what, Jesus? What? I mean, where's he going with this? Quite the dinner guest. Again, as I said, he performs an unacceptable healing on the Sabbath criticizes the social behavior he is witnessing, and then criticizes the host as well. Well, let me give you a little context, and then we'll lean more into this paradigm shift that I think Jesus is driving at with these two parables. I like to mention some of the books that I read. Um, Again, this is a book just by the title most of you will never, ever, ever want to read. But I thought it was cool. Here you go. This comes from the book Subversive Meals. An analysis of the Lord's Supper under Roman domination during the first century. You're all like, I can't wait to go buy that book by Alan Street. But what Alan Street does in this book is he looks, and and so it's so interesting, he has a whole chapter that basically covers even Luke 14. He looks at what was going on in the first century and how do we make sense because we are in a different continent at a different time. What is Jesus really driving at? And and, and it it really is. It really is as it it seems as you read through this. You got to remind yourself because you got to do a little work. But houses were much more open then than now, right? You don't have glass on the windows. (laughs) And if you host a party, I mean, everybody knows. Everybody knows. So I'm going to read a couple quotes from this book, Subversive Meals. Where one reclined at a meal, this is in Rome, first century, just common practice. Where one reclined at a meal in relation to the host was an open acknowledgement to all present of one's social status. Seating arrangement could fluctuate with each meal. A person could move up in status, for example, if he performed some public act that brought recognition or honor to the host. The seats closest to the host were the seats of honor, and most guests knew their assigned seats, but occasionally an early arrival might claim the seat of another in an attempt to move up the social ladder. Such might have been the case at this banquet. So again, how do you, if you have a social order, you have to have ways of reinforcing that social order. Where you sat at banquets was one of those ways. And this also dealing with um, kind of the second parable. The social climate of the Roman Empire was built also upon reciprocity. You'll, you'll pay me back what I pay you. Those who were invited to a banquet were expected to repay in kind. 
Listen to this, because we'll talk about it. Gifts were never free. Always came with strings attached. Therefore, one invited to his banquet only those who could reciprocate. And in this way, again, one's social status was maintained. A person of wealth or status would never consider inviting a a peasant to such an affair, else his own status would be diminished. Thus, careful attention was given to the guest list. The banquet was a means of maintaining the status quo. And Jesus is directly challenging it. Like right there in front of everybody. So let's, I got kind of two main things that I want to walk through. The first, I, I, want, I want to acknowledge that there are multiple ways to read this. And, and part of me really does want you to just hear the shock value. So I was trying to think, how do you hear the shock value? How do you, because as he's talking about giving up your seat of honor and someone else who deserves less honor than you may get more honor than you by where they see, I mean, that's a risk to take the lowest seat. And we recoil, don't we recoil? I mean, I want, that's what I want you to feel right now. Don't you hate it when somebody else gets honor that they don't deserve and you do? I know you do. I know I do too. A few years ago, we went to Disney World. My mom, we went for, we were celebrating my mom surviving breast cancer, right? That's awesome. It's worth celebrating. So I'm at Disney. I'm like, if anybody deserves to be honored, it's my mom. She beat breast cancer. It's awesome. We're cel- my mom loves Disney. But if you've ever been there, another amusement park, some of these places now, and they didn't even have the fast pass operating at the time. It was just a normal line. But there's still this other line that exists where people just walk around you and go to the front. And I remember rock and roller coaster. I'm like standing there. Like, it's like hours. It's like, is the ride moving? But somehow there's this other lane and people kept going around. And I started, at first, I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, some people got some special pass. And about 40 minutes, and I'm tired of these people getting the cut in front of me and ride the ride while I just, it's not fair. We recoil, I know you do too, right? We recoil. So now, do you feel it with me? Are you in the room now with Jesus? I mean, you're, you're getting to feel some of this. I mean, you need to feel it. Because Jesus, I mean, he draws you in. That's what he's doing. He's drawing you in. Don't just read it, oh, I learned. No, feel it. Now, we could do a whole sermon, and it would be worth doing. We could do a whole sermon on humility. I mean, humility is a big deal. It's the character. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. Read Philippians 2. Humility is a virtue. It's something we value today, actually. There's a great book called Humilitas by John Dixon, where he, he argues that humility became a virtue in our culture because of Jesus. Jesus made it I mean, I think it's always been beautiful, but Jesus made it recognized as beautiful. Cruciformity, Christ on the cross. Humility is a virtue, and it's good for your soul. It's good for your soul to be humble, and it's good for the world. So we could talk about humility and what happens as we practice this posture of humility. That is actually something that we can practice. But as I said, I want to talk about this paradigm shift. This is, that this is a parable. It's not advice for etiquette in first century Roman banquets. It's so much more. And, and so, again, because we're talking about paradigm shifts, I'm going to say some things that I've said frequently here. Now, some of you may be hearing it for the first time, but some of you heard this a lot, but it, it's important to remind us. So I want to, bro- I want to step back and broaden our story. Even the last few years, as, as I've read through the New Testament, and you see 
this name Cain and, and Cain and Abel pop up again and again. And as I've reread Genesis, I think early on as I was understanding the biblical story, I overlooked the importance of Cain and Abel. So just quickly, and we talk about this, Cain and Abel, what happens? Cain kills his brother Abel out of a spirit of rivalry. We're talking about rivalry and competition and getting mine before he gets his. Rivalry and competition. And the way the biblical narrative unfolds, if you follow the Bible and we're a church, that really does. The way the biblical narrative unfolds is that Cain is the one who goes off and founds human civilization. Now, what's an easy way of understanding human civilization? It's how we arrange ourselves as human beings. So the Bible would say that human civilization has its birth from a murderer who is consumed with the spirit of rivalry. Now you, know, now, you may not see that yet. That may be one of your first paradigm shifts. Wow, this whole human thing, broken. <laughs> I'm broken. That might be a paradigm shift for you. I'm broken. Well, this is all, it's all messed up, and I'm a part of it, and I'm impacted by it, and I contribute it to it. That's what we call sin. Just broke. It's all messed up all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. So when we talk about this kingdom of God being a banquet, a party, we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is Jesus, the true king, the true founder of humanity, the one who spoke us into existence. He's coming to rearrange. He wants to rearrange things. And if you really like the way things are, you might be like the Pharisees and start making up excuses. I'm not coming to that party. But if you find yourself, oh, I'm desperate, (laughs) and I'm in need of a Savior, I can't do this myself? Well, you might give up everything to be at the party. Where else would I go? <laughs> Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. So let's, let's, let's maybe, maybe accessing, because we don't think about parties as much on this social status as they did in the first century. So, so I just want you to picture a line. I, I talked about being in line at Disney World. Just picture being in line. And what is Jesus doing to rearrange things? How does this work? How is this a paradigm shift? I heard somebody else say it this way, and I'm just going to read. I wrote it down from the podcast. I thought it was super helpful. Jesus, I mean, in other places, I already referenced it, but in other places, he will say that the first will be last and the last will be first. It's easy to think about a line with with that language, right? But Jesus is not simply taking us from the back of the line and putting us in the front and taking those at the front and putting them in the back. What Jesus is doing is undoing our systems of measurement. That's where this becomes a paradigm shift, because because the very way you are analyzing or judging, Jesus is tearing the very way you do it apart and trying to give you something so much better. Jesus is saying to all of us, you think in terms of first and last, but I am the first and the last. It means that that anything other than Jesus is a false measurement. That's what it means. And if Jesus is the first and the last, then all of us are one in the end. If you hear this call to give up your place at the table as a word of bad news for you, i got to give up my place. Or if you hear, I mean, this is how the, the Pharisees, it's good news for you, but bad news for somebody else, you know. You're hearing it like Cain. 
You're hearing it in a spirit of rivalry. How can I outdo my brother or my sister? You're not hearing it like Jesus. And you need a paradigm shift. (laughs) Because Jesus is counteracting rivalry again and again and again with this radical love and radical forgiveness and radical mercy. Mutual love is possible in Christ if we both are one. If Cain and Abel, again, are one, not first and last. Don't think about it in terms of rivalry because because someone else will be first and you won't be. Because if you're second, you're not first and you'll always know it. Somebody cut in front of you, do they think they're more, what is that, you know, no, no, Jesus like, get rid of that measurement. It's radically different in the kingdom. We're one. I mean, again and again in the New Testament that we are one in Christ. We are one body. This is why I say frequently, and I don't mind saying it again and again, because if you really sit with this and you think about how much you've been shaped by rivalry and competition in our world and how much of a paradigm shift it is, you need to hear this again and again. The first time I say it, you might say, it sounds cool, but it might take you a while to really understand what I mean when I say life is a gift to be lived. It's not a game to be won. That sounds cool. That's all. I mean, I heard someone else say it. That's why I say it, right? But, but, But you have to sit with it. What does it mean? Do I live as if life is a gift? Or do I live as if life is a game? Now, Jesus is saying it's a gift. So, with that in mind, if I could, let me try to give you a different metaphor. Don't think about standing in line and where you are in line and whether you're first or last or can you get around somebody and then they got to move back. Don't think, I want you to think about an open hand. Just think about your hand out in front of you. It's wide open, palm up, and somebody, and let's say God, the the giver of all good things, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And I want you to think that your hand is open and God is just, he's just placing good things. Good things. I like to think of Reese's Pieces. Boom, boom, boom. Give me a whole, it drives Kami crazy. I want a whole handful. I don't want one. Just give me a whole handful. But think about just whatever good thing for you to put in. But but, but if you have a spirit of rivalry, what's going to happen? God is going to put a good thing in your hand. You're closing on it. It's mine. I got to make sure nobody else gets it. I can't believe I got this good thing. I got to hold on to it. But part of the picture is if you are holding so tightly to just one gift that God's given you, Nothing else gets in, and nothing gets out. But I, I want to I submit to you, instead of having a spirit of rivalry, a spirit of scarcity, you have a spirit of love. You have a humble, open hand. Because you're a part of a kingdom of abundance, and so you leave your hand open, knowing and trusting that the Father is going to put good things. And he might take something else out and give it to someone else, but you won't mind, because you know he'll put something else right back in. Do you understand? Do you see? Is that, that's, a, that's a different, it's a paradigm shift. You're not in line. No, your hand's open. And, and, and somehow there's just enough and there's more than enough because God never runs out. It's a paradigm shift. The Spirit of God has got to open our eyes to see it. And I, I think, I mean, it's kind of high level, but the, the reality is if you begin to live as if life is a gift and not a game, it will change the way you relate to other people. It will change the pressure you put on yourself, the way you view yourself in the mirror. You will wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, today is a gift. May I live it. You've given me great responsibility. May I, live, may I serve you well, my king. 
because I love you. Because there's no one like you, Jesus, right? Because he's amazing. All right, I got, I'm going to say this. I was going back and forth. I had a couple different illustrations I was going to use to try to make this a little bit stronger. But I'm going to say this because we got our college students here. I don't know why, but I was thinking back to this. My college graduation, I went to a a school in Ohio. I won't mention it because some of you will not like it. (laughs) But I went to a school in Ohio. It's a big school. And I was an engineer. My, My undergraduate degree, I know I'm a pastor, but my undergraduate degree is in chemical engineering the part of that engineering crew. And I remember our, gra- well, I'll never forget our graduation because President Bush spoke at my graduation while he was president, which was both super cool and super annoying because we had to line up forever early to get in for all the security reasons. But our graduation is a big deal, a big celebration. We're all there to celebrate this amazing accomplishment that we got through. We got our degree. And I remember at one point, you know, everybody's coming in, all these students coming in. There was this little rivalry between some of the groups. And not everyone did this. I definitely did not participate. I thought it was kind of ugly and embarrassing. But, but some of the engineering students always wanted to one-up the business students that we are smarter than you and we work harder than you. Well, of course, the business students are like, oh, yeah, you're right. No, the business students are like, oh, yeah? Well, we'll be your bosses and make more money than you. And so you get this, this rivalry chant at our graduation service ceremony with President Bush. Like, what is going on? Rivalry is so present, it's everywhere. And I just, what would it look like? What would it look like if instead of competing, we were just like, no, your joy is my joy. I want to I actually want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to, God has called us into these amazing vocations. College students, God is calling you into amazing vocations. And your work is one of the many ways you will love your neighbor. So do it well. I mean, what, what if our graduation could be a celebration of all this hard work and what we're going to go do to bring good into the world rather than, I'm better than you. No, 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 I'm better than you. I mean, again, it's a, it's a paradigm shift, and it only comes in Christ. It's a different way of measuring and analyzing and judging and evaluating, and it only comes in Christ. And we practice it in the church where we are one in Christ. We begin to learn together. And cross you, I think we are, but I still think we need to grow in this. What it means that your joy is my joy. And what it means that your tears are my tears. What it means that there's a lot of hard stuff that's still going to be coming our ways, but if we do it together, we can get through anything. What is it? I mean, that's that's the call of the church to be that kind of community. I know, and here's the thing. I think we're all craving it after the last two years, but we aren't doing it yet. We need to do it. Some of us still, we need to continue to grow that's why we'll talk about small groups. We'll talk about Sunday school. We'll talk about just being together, eating together. We, the more our lives overlap, the more and more we have opportunities to, for our joy. And, and we need to practice. Okay, I'm not in competition with you because life's a gift. And maybe you have something now in your hand, and God will move it to my hand and back and forth. And maybe we'll, we'll cry together and we'll laugh together and we're one in Christ because that's what it means. But you can only do this with Jesus. You can only do this with Jesus. So... You've got these passages, you can read them again and lean into how Jesus is trying to get us to think differently about what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. Again, this is not, it's not etiquette on really who you should invite and where you should sit. It's more, what does the kingdom look like? Now, I think it's all, there's implications. We could talk a lot of what does it mean to invite the poor and the lame and the blind? What does it mean? To, we can wrestle with that as a church. I think we do wrestle with it, but we need to wrestle more. What does that mean? 
We want to follow Jesus. We want to obey Jesus. But we will never do it apart from Jesus. Let me read John 14, very famous passage. But just listen to it in light of what we read in Luke. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. That's what Jesus says. And listen to this. In, in light of what we just talked about, there is more than enough room in my Father's house. Is, is Jesus going to run out? No, no, there's more than enough room. I mean, it's one of the natures of the kingdom is somehow you fill the room and there's more room. How do, I don't know. It's just the kingdom. It's how God's love works. Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that, where, so that you will always be with me where I am. You say, I can't give up my place. What if I lose my place? I've worked so hard for this place. I say, don't worry about it. Jesus has prepared a better place for you. Whatever place you've earned on your own, Jesus has a better place for you. Let him come and get you and take you. That's part of what Jesus said. You humble yourself, you'll be lifted up because you'll be walking in the Jesus way. You'll be living the kingdom life. You'll be closer to God because that's where God is and that's what he's doing. That's what Jesus is talking about in these parables. He's saying we, we've got to learn how to give place to other people because Jesus has given us his place in the Father. And because he's done that, we do that. We want to be like Jesus. We make place for other people because we're being like Jesus. And Christ isn't displaced by us when he gives us his place. There's just always more and more room. I mean, I'm not even going to ask if that makes sense because it will counteract my whole paradigm shift, right? But I, I guess I just want to invite you. Will you wrestle with this? Please, please don't just write down in your notes, life is a gift to be lived, not a game to be won, and not think about it. This week, think about where am I competing? And, 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 here, and don't just, this is important for discipleship and growth. Don't just think, where am I competing? I need to stop. Uh-uh, uh-uh, don't do that. First, notice where you're competing, and then compassionate curiosity, ask why. Why do I need to get ahead of this person? What am I afraid of? What am I afraid this person's going to do to me? Or what am I afraid I'm going to miss out on? Just ask the question and then be honest. And then here comes the gospel and the good news. Remind yourself or have one of your brothers or sisters in Christ remind you of why Jesus takes all that away. Because the good news is good news. And you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to compete. And you don't have to be intimidated. And you don't have to have rivals. Because in Christ there's more than enough room. Amen? All right, let's pray. Now, Jesus, that's, that is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that pursues a posture of humility. This is not about us. So the last song we just sang, it's in Christ. It's all about you, Jesus. I mean, we, we want you to be enthroned and seen and glorified. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll take a lowly place because you did. And we'll let you do with us what we do believe. Actually, I mean, I don't know. There is just a truth that we will be rewarded by the Father as we pursue you. We're not going to miss out on anything is the point. But when it's time, God will bless us in the ways that are most meaningful and necessary. But we are going to choose humility. We're going to put others before ourselves, even though it's hard. We're going to wrestle with 
I mean, we have been formed and shaped and sculpted into a narrative of rivalry and scarcity. We don't want that. And we acknowledge it. I mean, we need a Savior. We need to deliver. We cannot simply change the way we view things. But Jesus, we do believe in you there is a better way. And Holy Spirit, this morning is a prayer for us to ask you because we're some of the blind. I mean, that's the truth. We're blind. And we cannot make ourselves see. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, help us to see Help us to see that the only measurement is Jesus, and he measures in love. And we might not even know what that means, but we want to learn it. Take us on a journey that changes us forever so that Crossview can be a missional place, a missional family, a, a, a healing zone, a joyous celebration of the gift of life that we've been given. And we only pray this in your name, Jesus, because you're our only hope. You're the only one we turn to because no one else can do what you do. And your power is unfathomable. And your creativity is amazing. It's in your mighty name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.